first story deals with a subculture of heavy metal music that some feel is sending a dangerous message to your kids. The forces of evil on the dark side of devil rock. And I want to talk tonight about the devil and demons and witches and wizards. And we just mix it up with hardcore and aggression and come out with something that we face an original sound. Loud, fast, heavy, you know. Well, what do you got? What do you got? You're listening to Riff Worship, the podcast that attempts to answer the age-old question, what makes a riff? Why do we worship all things the riff? I'm one of your illustrious hosts, Austin Paulson. With me, as always, is the great bald hope, Arkansas's prodigal son, Dylan W. Adams. Dylan, how are you? It's good. It's cold. It's 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 actually fall. It's finally fall here on a blistery, sub-40-degree day in uh, Tennessee. It's uh, it's nice. I had to break out the, I had to break out the good hat for the old nog in the day. <laughs> you gotta stay. It's gotta stay warm, bud. Can't let it out in the elements. Uh, yeah, it is a little gloomy up here yep. in the north. Uh, this is probably my favorite time of the year, just because. Yeah. One, all the horror movies, and then two, uh, all of my short black shirts become long black shirts. <laughs> I'm wearing like the bulls rip off yeah <laughs> harm's it's, way shirt right now it's nice knowing that i can walk into my home and not sweat from humidity it's like oh it's it's 70 degrees outside but you know the humidity makes it feel like 912 that was probably my, my least favorite thing about living in kentucky is that you could shower and then still be wet getting out. <laughs> i mean like yeah. just sweating <laughs> i might have to take it out take another shower just to like clean off from getting from the curtain to the bedroom once i showered i refused to go outdoors ever again like it's like all right i'm showered you want to go nope sorry some say you've never left the house to this day yeah you know it's it's i'm a curmudgeon i'm a lecherous curmudgeon i'm like a golem-esque character when it goes out when it comes to going outside i just hiss and ain't that the truth um well as much as i love talking about uh your uh, Gollum-esque ways. Uh, we do have an album that we'd like to discuss today. Uh, yes, we've we been do. talking about this episode for a while, mm-hmm. and it kind of spawned through our conversation with Andy LaRock a, f- uh, a few weeks back. But yep. um, a, a, an album that has experienced uh, a pretty uh, landmark anniversary, uh, perhaps one of the best death metal albums of all time, or at least a very influential, pivotal record in the genre. I could say I could say yay to both of those, honestly. I guess really just get into it. It's individual thought patterns by death. Uh, you saw it on the link. You clicked on it, and we're going to be talking about it today. So, um, I as as with many of our episodes, I guess I want to start with by asking, how did you get into death? How did you find out about death? Uh, was it an early listen for you? Was it? Did you get to him later? So with death, and one thing I want to touch on before we get into how I got into him was we touched on this not only in our conversation with Andy, but also our Covenant episode. This album released on the very same day as Covenant, uh, June 22nd, 1993, and was recorded at Morris Sound Studios at the very same time, albeit with a different producer. That's Um, right. My first, I have a weird relationship with the band Death. Uh, basically they were one of those bands that when I started getting into death metal was just kind of being shoved down my throat is like, you have to listen to death. If you listen to death metal, you have to listen to death. 
when you when your first foray in the death metal is Cannibal Corpse, it's kind of hard to go, oh, there's anything more aggressive than that, right? Which there are. There, you know, um, you know, there are definitely more bands that could be, you know, perceived as being more aggressive as Cannibal Corpse. Um, but with Death, uh, my first introduction to Death was probably the same one as yours, uh, which was hearing Spirit Crusher. For the first time, I think I saw a live video, maybe uh, from Dynamo Festival in like '98. Yep, I'm uh, familiar. It was, just, it was just that clip, and it may have even been on like Headbangers Ball or something like that. Um, and I heard that and was like, "This is kind of cool." Um, you know, this is all right. There, there wasn't much to it. It sounded like it almost sounded like a prog metal record or a prog rock record to me, as opposed to like death metal. Uh, and then it was oh. You have to hear Scream Bloody Gore, Leprosy. This is like Death's best era. Uh, and it was much later. I believe I was in my early 20s when I finally got a chance to hear Human and Individual Thought Patterns. Um, and I'll go ahead and say it. This is my favorite Death album. Um, you know, I love Human because of the lineup that they had with that and the song structure. That's when Death got weird to me. Yes. But this album is the culmination of all the weirdness with all the classic influences uh, to it. Um, it was, you know, it was much later uh, when I got into this album. So I was in my early 20s. Matter of fact, I bought Symbolic uh, in, when I was like 18 and did not like it at all. Thought it, was, thought it was kind of weak, honestly. Just, you know, and that's just my 18-year-old opinion of it. Uh, I know a lot of people really like that record. Yeah, it's... um. It's not my favorite. I don't know if I necessarily would even go as far as saying they have a bad record necessarily. Right. I, I like the sound of Perseverance. I, I I think it's a good record, and I I even like you know the uh, the painkiller cover. Uh, the the painkiller cover That's as great. well. Uh, I mean, hell, there's a, a Kiss cover on uh, Human that I love, or at least like a bonus track. Uh, they did God of Thunder, right? Yep, they did God of Thunder. Um, but yeah, I would say that. I may be partial to human just because it is in fact the first thing that I heard. Um, I am familiar with the dynamo video, but the first thing I remember seeing of this band was the lack of comprehension video, which I believe is their first music video. And uh, it blew me away. I was like, I've never heard anything like this. I have never seen anything like this. Right. Um, it's a, a very simple, but like dark and eerie kind of video. That's the video where the it starts and there's the young man that's in the bed, right? Yeah, he's like playing guitar. It's like, you yep. know, obviously very relatable, I'm sure, to people where it's like, you know, you're not necessarily understood. And maybe there's like it's the 2112 thing. Yeah. So it's like it's it's an it's an odd video. It's different, but it makes you think. And I think that's kind of where we're at with this era of the band where, mm -hmm. you know, maybe this band had started out being more caveman esque yep. gore influenced death metal on Scream Bloody Gore, Leprosy. Maybe you kind of see a bit of a shift on spiritual healing, but this is definitely a more introspective band by this point. Um, you know, Chuck Schuldiner uh, of Death, the, 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 the guy, he is, he is Death. Yep. No ifs, ands, or buts. In many interviews, he's on record as saying, like, I'm trying to do something different from your deicides or, you know, your cannibal corpses. Yep. Um, you know, I think he was trying to say something, you know, life in general is already very brutal. Like real life yeah. is very brutal. I think that was the point he was trying to get across. And I think 
there is a, uh, a relatability to what he was doing as far as lyrically uh, that connected me with me on a, in a very uh, early age. So I got, I heard the lack of comprehension. I heard, I watched the video. Um, the first record I got was Leprosy. Uh, I went to a record store by the name of Kiss the Sky that mm-hmm. was located. It was, uh, they used to be located in a, like kind of a strip mall connected to uh, Jewel Osco, uh, Jules. Um, and then they moved to Geneva. And I remember going there for the first time. I bought uh, the first Slayer record, Show No Mercy, and then I got Leprosy. And I remember going up to the cash register. My dad stopped me and he's like, oh, what do you got? What do you got under there? And he looked at both of those amazing album covers and just yeah. like laughed. He's like, whatever, man, just just here. Here's here's a 10. Just get him with that with that lovely Ed Repka artwork. That is a very like I think that I think the artwork of that album is probably um, more known than the album itself. Yes, I love I mean, some of the um, those like caveman groove, just pummeling riffs are excellent uh you you will find some of that on these like this era of the band like your human and the individual thought patterns like we'll we'll get into but like you said there this band we've mentioned this in other episodes where there's a clear style or a clear Mm -hmm. uh defining sonic quality to each era each album of this band where it's like all right leprosy scream bloody gore maybe even spiritual healing a little bit it kind of fits into that that yeah. block of time for this band. And then you have human and individual thought patterns. And this is perhaps my favorite era of the band. Uh, yes, it's more progressive. Uh, they're trying to push themselves as musicians. There's a skill. There's just so much going on. And yeah, human is kind of the introduction to that sound. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe some of it is a little, uh, it wasn't quite, you know, uh, reined in. Like right. really... He's they're trying everything and it's great. You know, obviously you got like Sean Reinhardt on drums. He's got Steve DiGiorgio on bass. Paul Masvidal. Yep. I mean, you, yep. two guys from Cynic who are. You have Cynic in that band, basically. And the, and they're so young. I mean, I, I believe 19? they were still in high school. Yeah if, yeah. if not just graduated. So there is a really cool backstory of that record yep. and, and, you know, how it came to be. But this is really where they take all of that influence, yep. all of that. Uh, all of those progressive elements, and essentially, uh, we have just a monster individual thought patterns. To to kind of touch on Human for a moment, I always considered Human the weirder album. Right, you've mm-hmm. got two guys that went on to be in one of the most forward thinking like death metal bands. It's hard to call Cynic a death metal band, really, even though it's lumped into that. Um, you know, with these great jazz influences and these. Uh, atmospheric influences and just just overall these lush sounds that came out of that band. But Human was the weirder album. Um, and there was a lot of exploration going on in that record, which is completely polarizing compared to Spiritual Healing just a couple years before it, right? Mm-hmm. Completely different records, like a massive jump in what they were doing. And then you get to Individual Thought Patterns that has honestly a more refined approach of what happened on human right you've got all the exploration um from human that went into this album because you can definitely hear it in the structures and some of the uh the riffs that were written the songs that were written um and but it's all very much more song based on this album this is like the refined version of that era um this is i think the best representation of the technicality and the experimentation mixed with 
death metal or traditional aggressive heavy metal music because you could even look at uh you could look at some of the death records post human um and go that's just heavy metal with an aggressive vocalist and maybe more double kick like there's definitely some rudimentary like guitar stuff on there i think this album in particular while there is a i mean we're going to dive into some of these yeah. tracks i mean there's so many things going on rhythmically obviously gene hoagland who uh the machine yeah the atomic clock the atomic clock gene hoagland uh this is his first appearance on the record kind of taking over for uh sean reinhardt and you know i guess there's always a thing too with the lineup changes of these i mean obviously um as you kind of progress through their discography there are a lot of lineup changes throughout this group's history yep um you know there's definitely uh the lore as far as like problems with touring and Mm -hmm. you know uh, you know you could definitely dive into that uh the backstory and you know with you have two guys from cynic you would think wow it works so well on human why wouldn't they have just kind of gone with um that lineup for individual thought patterns and you know perhaps they were busy with cynic uh perhaps he wanted to do something else uh right I, i think it's definitely covered in the the documentary death by metal if I remember right, in that documentary, weren't all the songs written with Sean Reinhardt in mind? Didn't he play, like, didn't he write, help write a lot of this? And then Gene came in. So from what I understand, and I, I could be wrong, was that they, it, it's very possible that they were jamming uh, for mm-hmm. this record. It seems like kind of, uh, this, this has kind of been the thing that's happened a little bit. Yeah. where They were writing with the next album in mind, perhaps, and then um, they went on tour. Right. They got back, and uh, I think he just didn't even call John to let mm-hmm. him know that maybe they were going with Gene. Um, they were just looking for maybe a, a different direction. Um, he, you know, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. Obviously, he's no longer yeah. with us, unfortunately. Uh, to kind of touch on like what his feelings were, what he was trying to accomplish. But yeah, it seems like a couple times uh, throughout watching the documentary Death by Metal. Um, per, they're like working on, uh, yeah. you know, like even Steve, like we, they were working on symbolic and he didn't end up making it on that record, but he wrote, I think a lot of those parts at least. So with the whole death catalog, I mean, you definitely, there's definitely a few people that have came and gone out of that, out of this band. Um, and you can see that there are a couple names that'll pop up and will stay a little while, you know, uh, it's, you know, the first record was essentially Chuck and Chris Reifert. That was it. Yep. Uh, Chris Reifert went on to become Autopsy, um, which Steve DiGiorgio played bass on the first Autopsy record. So there's another yep. tie in. Steve was supposed to play bass on screen. Bloody Gore. Yep. Um, I mean, there's a lot of tie ins with that. I mean, with all the lineup changes, I think. I'm interpreting that Chuck had the same process with. um lineups that maybe a Glenn Danzig did where it was, Hey, every album can have a different lineup because it's essentially just a different sounding record. And I want it to sound different. Uh, and I think a lot of that, you know, comes with maybe people that are a little more enigmatic, maybe have uh, very strong personality traits, maybe have those alpha personality traits, um, which it definitely seems like Chuck did. Um, but you also get these great results from all of that too. Uh, I mean, we might as well just dig into the lineup of this record with what we've got. Gene Hoagland, this is his first record uh, for the group. They had met previously, 
uh, while Jean was in Dark Angel. And there was a, you know, thing of like them going on tour together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there was some sort of deal because both bands were on combat records. That's right. So they, there's the tie in. You got equal billing. Now, I believe there was an issue as far as what that means. It's like, oh, equal billing is not exactly co-headlining. You're right. So that became a a little bit of a problem. And, you know, like you said, there's that uh, different egos or different mentalities of what this is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And they ulti- death ultimately ended up leaving that tour. So there was a bit of a uh, b- bad blood or a little bit of beef between Gene and Chuck for a long time. And so I think later on, Gene Hoagland was essentially kind of making his exit from Dark Angel. At least they were kind of winding down. People right. are going off and doing different things. So he's kind of looking around. And so uh, I think word got around to Chuck and to Gene that, hey, I'm looking for a new band or looking for something new to do. Oh, well, you know, they're looking for a drummer. So you have that connection. And it seemed like once they got on the phone, they just kind of picked up from where they were before. It didn't even really matter anymore. So thus you have uh, Gene Hoagland playing drums on this record. And that double bass is like all over. Some of these like little flutters and really, I mean, it's, what you would expect from a metal band, but he's also really, it's almost very like jazz influence. He's really just all over the kit. It's wonderful. It definitely sounds like, and I believe he touched on this in the documentary, um, that he was a fan of the human record, uh, mm-hmm. was a fan of Sean Reinhardt's playing. And I believe he probably took some of that and went, okay, this is already a thread from the last album, the last era of the band. What can I bring to the forefront, but still keep some of that, you know, style, keep some of that flair in there. And obviously Gene is, uh, Gene is the drummer of drummers, right? You know, yes. his, 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 uh, catalog of bands he's played with has, has been extensive and who he's filled in for. I mean, my God, uh, he's in Testament at this point. Um, actually he's not my apologies. He's no longer in Testament. Um, but he was in Testament for many years and it just shows that all the things he's done, like he can do anything. He's not just the fast, heavy metal drummer, although he does that probably at the top of the rung. There's not many people that are better than him. Which is, you know, it's great. You know, obviously his career has been long established. You know, he's one of the dudes. He's one mm-hmm. of like these forefathers of the genre, uh, forefathers of this style of playing. And what I found interesting kind of doing some research for this episode was that he kind of said this was really where he became a drummer. Right. Because if you look back before, he wrote a lot of the riffs for Dark Angel. He was yep. playing a lot of guitar. And so he he felt that maybe the the drums were taking a back seat in that band. Now you only have one job. You mm-hmm. are you are the band's drummer. So really you just kind of get to fly. And he fucking does that perfectly. It's you know it's why I love some of those strapping young lad records. And that's a very, those are very drum centric recordings of those is like his feet, his feet are impeccable. Um, and he, I mean, I, if I remember right, he used to, he either practiced or he played with ankle weights on for a while oh, just to add, yeah, just to add more speed to it. And he'd play in like, he'd play in like combat boots. It was, it was the wildest thing I've ever seen. Um, but you know, you've got an addition of Gene Hoagland, uh, the atomic clock joining the band, uh, then you've also got the second record with Steve DiGiorgio, 
in which we touched on a little bit of his history with the band. He was supposed to be on Scream Bloody Gore. Uh, that didn't happen. He had his fulfillments to the band Sadus and some of his recording work he was doing at the time. Um, but when it came around to record Human, obviously he was a shoe-in. You know, uh, he was known for playing fretless bass. That was a different aspect on the Death album um, to bring in a fretless bass player, especially in death metal. That's a very, that's probably one of the first instances, if not the first instance in death metal, uh, to have a fretless bass player on there. And he's all over that record, albeit the only caveat and gripe I have to that record is the original mix has him buried. Yeah, You can barely hear him. Now on the remixes that they did of that, which we're going to touch on with this album, the remix on Human is great. I think everyone loved the remix on that one. Um, but you get to hear him. Yeah, you get to hear them all over that record. Now, you fast forward a couple years to individual thought patterns. He is very much up front in the mix. He's a big proponent of it. He adds this different texture to it. Uh, you know, he's all over this record. And this is one of the first instances of like hearing the band's catalog that I think Chuck was just clearly like, I trust you to do what you do have at it because based on interviews that I've read of his, based on uh, videos, whatever, he never really had cuffs put on him. Steve, that being, never really had cuffs put on him by Chuck. He could essentially play anything he wanted. Um, and it just made sense because he knew Steve was going to play for the part. Uh, and he's all over this record. I mean, there's parts on this record that are completely nuts. I mean, the walking line in the song Destiny oh is God. absolutely one of the most ludicrous things I've ever heard. Um, he's, he's a big part of this band's history. I think he's as important in certain periods, uh, as Chuck is because he was such a, he comes off as such a level headed, uh, musician. Uh, obviously Steve is known for a very, uh, dense technique that he has. He's one of the first guys to use the repetitions of three to do, uh, notes on the bass. So he's playing with three fingers, um, he doesn't get a lot of the credit he deserves, I think, because you've got guys like Alex Webster that, and if anybody follows this, Alex Webster actually called Steve DiGiorgio's home to figure out how he did that. Really? And Steve had to explain it over the phone of like, here's how you do it. And obviously Alex took it and is now the pinnacle of bass playing in death metal. Um, but he learned it from Steve DiGiorgio, who is, again, it's funny to think this because you don't really put the name there, but Steve was in a lot of the really early runnings of what classic death metal is. I mean, he's on the first autopsy record. Like he's got his hands in every bit of it. Yeah. And then even to tie it back again to Testament. I mean, they were in Testament together, Steve and uh, Gene. Um, they had a lot of run-ins with each other. It seems they sure did. So, um, and then also, if I'm not mistaken, they do the, what is it? The death, the to death all to tour. All. Yep. So, and you know, kind of a way to celebrate this era of the band, yep. celebrate the catalog. Uh, you know, I, I feel like they even kind of touched on too. I, I've not ever seen it live, but you know, you, it's a way for them to kind of revisit some of those songs, yep. but also do it in kind of like a modern way as well. Yep. So it's, they kind it's of fun. Those modern touches to I it. I love it. It's, it's so cool. I haven't seen a lot of the videos from that, uh, from that, kind of collective tribute. Um, I have seen, I think, one or two videos, and I think Matt Harvey might have did guest vocals for them at one point. Mm -hmm. That's before this this most recent band he created. Um, but this album was recorded as a three-piece, essentially. Yeah, and the um, 
the other thing I wanted to touch on with uh, with Steve as well mm-hmm. was this is the first time I've ever I was not you know I was a metal guy I was a rock yep. guy I never heard fretless bass before I yep. never heard it quite like that and so when I would hear some of these little like these runs the horn sounding things the the little slides that he does yep. he adds to it all of these little details um I was blown away I was like what is he doing like what it what instrument could this possibly be um you know you listen to some of the earlier records and you know there's nothing wrong with Chuck's playing on the first record there's nothing right. wrong with you know your Terry Butler but I feel like it is more kind of straightforward you're kind of playing along with the guitar yep. whereas this is like you mentioned running all over the neck there the arrangements are set up in a way where he really has the time to breathe and and yep. really just kind of paint with such large brushes and strokes that uh, and it, and it, you can hear it you can hear everything on this record um but you're yes, you're correct. There's this record was essentially recorded as a three piece, and so this is kind of the point where we we touch on our uh, former guest of our show, Andy LaRock, who you know obviously a long time standing current member of King Diamond, yep. uh, essentially invited to play on this record because they didn't have uh, that that second guitar. Uh, you know, obviously, like we mentioned, you kind of lose the guys in Cynic. Uh, they're doing their own thing. All right, where where do we find kind of our second instrument here? And from what I understand, we kind of touched on this in the in the interview is that they got connected through uh, uh, there's like an A and R guy for Relativity, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Andy LaRock essentially comes out from Sweden to play on the record. He's there for like maybe a few days, and uh, he is able to record his parts. Um, now, I guess we have uh, Andy <laughs> to talk about this with. So maybe we should t- turn things to him to kind of explain how this came to be and some of his uh, uh, memories from recording. So here's Andy LaRock. Here's Andy. Uh, another record that experienced an anniversary this year, 30th anniversary, uh, Individual Thought Patterns, which uh, you're all over that record as far as uh, this, this soloing. Um, you know, I wonder uh, how that kind of came to be. I know uh, you guys kind of shared... Uh, labels at at one point with Roadrunner uh, is that kind of is it Monty Connor who kind of made that uh, happen uh, to get you in touch with Chuck? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Chuck um, attended at a few of our shows down in Florida, you know, back in the early days, you know, and he told me that he always been a great King Diamond fan, you know, but we never really got in touch, you know, until Monty Connor back then, like ninety two, I believe it was. He said, hey, I got, you know, I talked to Chuck and he really wants you to come over to do some solos, you know, for the album, next album with Death. And we weren't doing anything with King Diamond at the time. So I thought, sure, you know, I got nothing else to do right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm totally in, you know, for, for that, you know. So he kind of put everything together and, you know, I flew over to um, Tampa for like 10 days or so, you know. And uh, recorded some solos, you know, and I had a good time with the guys, you know, and Chuck, you know, great guy. And Steve DiGiorgio, you know, cool. And, and, um, oh, uh, Gene Hogan? Gene, exactly. Gene, I mean, he was actually, he left the day before I arrived. And it took more than 20 years till we actually met the first time. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. So I met him at the festival in Belgium a couple of years ago. That's so cool. I would have never have guessed that. Crazy, man. No, I never met him. But uh, I met Steve a few times, you know, of course, uh, 
Chuck, you know, a couple of times after, you know, the recording and everything, you know. And he always called me on New Year's Eve. Hey, Andy, it's Chuck. How you doing, man? <laughs> Until his passing, of course, you know, which, you know, very sad, you know. But he was a great guy, man. Very, uh, you know, progressively minded as well as far as like the the guitar. I feel like kind of a similar minded thing is that, you know, with each record, uh, kind of always elevating with each sound, always trying to get better and better. Um, did you uh, spend much time working with uh, Scott Burns at uh, More Sound? Uh, did you have any interactions with him while working on the record, the engineer there? Oh, yeah. I mean, not like a producer or anything, you know, but I, I mean, as a musician, you know. I got my small uh, back then, you know, I had like a Walkman thing, you know, you know, so I got the songs on tape and just practicing along with that and got into the studio with a few ideas and recorded it, you know, and uh, that's about it. You know, I, I you know, had some time recording solo like every day, you know, for like 10 days, whatever, you know, so that was good. And a, a cool thing uh, back then was actually that Fleming Rasmussen, you know, the Metallica yeah. producer. Yeah was actually in the studio at the same time. Yes. He was okay. working with, uh, I believe, I can't, I'm not sure about it, but I think he was working with Cannibal Corpse at the time. So we actually covered this in, a, in another episode of ours. So two albums released on the same day, Individual Thought Patterns and Morbid Angels Covenant. And so they were recorded at the same studio. And so, yeah, Fleming was working with Morbid Angel at the same time. So do you- Morbid Angel, that's right. I thought it was Cannibal Morbid Angel, yeah. Correct. Which definitely a band that frequented that studio a lot. Uh, but I, uh, yeah. So what was it like? Did you see any uh, anything in the background going on with uh, their recording process, perhaps? Not really. I met some of the guys, I believe, in the kind of studio lobby kind of thing, you know, but that's about it. Said hi and talked a little bit and that's it, you know. But I think they were done with the recording at the time. I, I'm not sure, you know, because I never really saw the guys. So maybe they were into the mixing phase or something. I'm not sure, you know. And we were really busy with our stuff, you know, so. That's really cool. I mean, it's, uh, we were kind of talking about that before where, you know, these two pivotal albums recorded at the same studio at the same time, they released on the same day. I just had to know if, yeah, that you guys ever crossed paths. So that's, that's cool. At least in some aspects of that, um, you know, was there, uh, kind of like you mentioned with King, uh, you know, obviously it's uh, a lot of this project in death is Chuck's baby. Um, did he have a particular way he wanted you to play or did you pretty much have free reign to kind of let loose on the, on those songs? Well, I just did my thing, I believe, you know, and he, he wanted me to do that. You know, that was like, uh, I remember it was one part, you know, that I just couldn't, I wasn't really happy with it, you know? And he told me, Hey, maybe Andy, maybe you could do something different on that part. You know, and you know, I just, yeah. I need to do something different, you know, and I, I think it turned out good, you know, because I just, you know, changed it around to something completely different and it turned out good, you know. There was only one part I really had problems on, you know, the rest, he just let me play my style. Another point I'd like to uh, kind of touch on as well is that I'm not exactly sure Andy had like a, a lot to go off of when no. prepping for this record. Um, Chuck did send him songs to kind of go off of but they were only tapes that included sections of where chuck wanted andy yeah. to play he wanted him to play solo sections he wanted andy to play solo sections on uh the record but he only sent him those snippets of like all right here you go so he doesn't really have like a context or full yeah. grasp of what the song is supposed to be like i 
want to say that he did prepare some things, but without really knowing the full, you know, quality of the song, it's yeah. really hard to kind of prepare yourself for that. So when he showed up, you know, knocking on, you know, more sound studios door and they're like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't really have like a ton prepared. Um, they were kind of worried, but by all means, you really kind of entered the studio and kind of told the guys, don't worry. Like I'm a professional. I know yep. what I'm doing and, and laid down some of the coolest lead lines on this album. And you, you hear them, you hear them essentially immediately. They're on the first track. They sure are. Like it's, I mean, it within what, 20 seconds you hear him like harmonized. Yeah. Uh, he, he's right there. Cause it like, it sounds like a punch in it's, it's up front in the mix. Yeah. Overactive imagination yep. is, is a really great start to the record. It starts fast too. There's really not, they're, they're not wasting time. They, they really uh, get in there and his uh, melodic style is very clear. What I love about this record too, it's it's kind of like when you listen to, I don't know, when you listen to like Megadeth, for instance, right? Yep. And there's definitely some crossovers there as far as like lineup changes and yep, you know maybe absolutely. the lead guy kind of running things here. But whenever you listen to a specific record that features, uh, you know, a different guitar player, you can hear the difference in Dave's playing versus whoever's on the record. And I feel like you get that. It works perfectly to get this. Yes. They're trading off, but I know just being a fan and listening to these records for a long time that I know the difference in Chuck style versus Andy LaRock style. Oh, like you yeah. bringing that, that King diamond influence on this record, which, you know, obviously these guys are huge fans of and they're fans of merciful fate. They know those records. It, I'm sure it was a, a big treat for them to have him in the studio and playing on this stuff. Well, it's, you're right. It's hearing the contrasting styles and that's what, that's why I like this era of the band as opposed to maybe the first three records. Uh, those first three records, when I hear those, I'm, I instinctively know those are very, those are rudimentary uh, ground basics of death metal, right? The guitar playing is there. It's not bad. It's just that's very fundamental for death metal. Uh, but when you hear human, you hear the phrasing and the technique and the stylistic changes that are brought in by Paul Masvidal. And then you hear this album and you immediately, the, as soon as the first note is hit on overactive imagination, uh, when, you know, Andy's like layered in there, you know, that's Andy LaRock. You, you know, that's him immediately because it's his calling card. It's his tagline from playing with, um, you know, King Diamond for so many years from his influences there. You know, these were... Chuck was a big fan of those Merciful Fate and those King Diamond records. And that's why he wanted them on there. He goes, oh, yeah, that's that's who I want on there. It's because he was a fan of his style. And you hear Andy's influences all over there, like as he talked about the Scorpions and and so on and so forth. Uh, but he is he's all over the record. He may be only in a, a couple spots, but the way Chuck wrote for this record akins to that style of music. So it sounds like he's all over the record. Yeah, absolutely. And. Uh, as I kind of mentioned, uh, you know, Andy coming into the studio from Sweden, obviously more sound is a huge, huge, uh, you know, hub in, in Tampa, Florida for yep. this style of music. Obviously you have Scott Burns who had worked with death previously mm -hmm. to this recording as well. Um, likely anything of note from this era of death metal and extreme music perhaps came from more sound studios as well as Scott Burns being at the helm of working on it production uh production wise. So touching on on that Scott Burns production, this might be one of his best sounding productions. 
Because let, let's face it, I think he was learning how to produce these bands as they were going through. Some of the early death metal albums sound a little muddy, um, but he's learning. You can clearly tell by the time he left this world that the records were sounding better. And this yeah. sounds really crisp and really mixed well. You know, comparing this to Beneath the Remains or like uh, Slowly We Rot, like you hear the production on those, which was were five and six years, maybe even seven years before, to this album are vastly, vastly different productions. Uh, and this is a really crisp production. Essentially, every death album is produced by Chuck. Let's face it. You know, uh, Scott mixed it. Scott engineered it. That sort of thing. He he actually hit record, whereas Chuck was going, I want it to sound this way. I want this amount. I want this, you know, level of DB, wh- whatever it may be. Um, but this is one of Scott's better recordings uh it's any any listen i've had to this i just still concede that this is one of his best recordings and luckily we've got uh decibel magazine is putting out a great book on scott's career basically and it's like a four to five hundred page book on that so that's going to be great i can't wait to dive into that and um yeah i you know with with your i I think you're totally right as far as this may be one of his better sounding Mm -hmm. records that he worked on um, but you know, I, it's not a fault that the other records may Mm-mm. sound lesser or whatever. I'm not saying that at all. I guess this is literally like maybe one of the first guys to really understand what those records should sound like. So yeah, he's trying to figure it out in real time. And, uh, I mean, we have so many classic records, uh, because of it. And, you know, as we mentioned, as Andy mentioned, uh, you know, Morbid Angel also recording Covenant yeah. in the, uh, same studio around the same time. I think they uh, perhaps ran into each other as well. The, um, you know, kind of the context of like a lot of the stuff going on, and we touched on this in the Covenant episode, is that really this was perhaps death metal's peak at the time. You know, this was, yeah, uh, absolutely I mean, literally so. Covenant on a major label. Uh, you have, I mean, some of the other records coming out at the same time. Entombed Wolverine Blues came out this year. Talk about a polarizing record was that one. Yeah, no kidding. And then uh, also another polarizing record, Carcass Heartwork, another yep. major label release for a death metal band yep. as well. I mean, then you also have some some black metal coming out around mm-hmm. this year as well. Uh, Dark this was Throne, the big Dark Throne record, right? Under a Funeral Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, you have some some doom happening as well on maybe the other side of the country with uh, Sleep Holy Mountain, yep. uh, you know, Sludge uh, coming out of New Orleans Houdini. at this time, you have yeah, Houdini came out this year. Uh, definitely a record I would love to touch on at some point. Uh, yeah. The uh, Take Is Needed for Pain record, I hate God. So Ooh. there's a lot of things happening yeah. in underground music at this time. Uh, death metal kind of hitting its peak, and you know I think records like Covenant and Individual Thought Patterns certainly kind of mark that peak of this era. Death metal may have been at its peak, but you had like this weird resurgence of. The 90s was really strange, right, mm-hmm. with how what music was being signed to these larger labels and was expected to sell. We've touched a lot on that. But you also had bands that were um, really like shaking the ground a little bit, making some headway. I mean, you had two big records put out by Roadrunner Records, which we'll again touch on a little bit. Uh, you had Typo Negatives, Bloody Kisses, the yeah. uh, Roadrunner Records' first gold record, I believe. Okay. Uh, you had Sepultura's Chaos AD, which is a game changer album for that band, brought them to the mainstream. Uh, you know, on a past episode in the high main, in the big mainstream portion of it, you had uh, Nirvana's In Utero came out the same year. You had grunge at its height. This was a really weird time for music. 
And all of these labels, which we touched on this uh, in the Covenant episode, all of these labels were really looking to go, who's going to move units? Who's going to do this? So they were taking chances and we got all these great records during this time. I mean, Death was signed to Relativity, which has a lineage of like different heavy bands and hip hop acts. Uh, I mean, it's it's a laundry list of records from bands such as Bolt Thrower, Carcass, Entombed, mm-hmm. uh, Confessor, you know, bands, you know, but with many more than I'm missing. Um, but 93 was a peak year for a lot of underground forms of music with black metal. Honestly, the second wave of black metal was having its like height during this point as well. Uh, between like 93 and maybe 96, uh, when you saw that, this was during the period when we started hearing inklings of Varg, Vikernes, and Euronymous, and, and all of this other stuff. Uh, you know, this is a period of time when death metal was being viewed as the overproduced subgenre, yeah. which is hilarious. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned in a previous episode, Covenant, where, you know, Blessed Are the Sick was basically yeah. the record that uh Fenris heard and was like this is awful yeah. <laughs> i don't want any part of this and so you I love that, essentially have a shift from being a death metal band and kind of doing this other form of extreme music um so a little bit about this record too uh, one thing that sticks out to me on individual thought patterns is obviously it's very technically proficient mm-hmm. uh, obviously it is very well produced it sounds mm-hmm. great it's also a very uh angry record oh this is Chuck just Big Mad scathing record. Uh lyrically, it is like every song is a diss track, it feels like. You know, <laughs> you could really make up who it could be, but every song on the album seems like he is like directing his anger towards someone in particular. And uh wow, I mean, you could list go through some of these lyrics. I mean, yeah, even on the first track, Overactive Imagination, there's the opening lines, life for you is performance, play out the leading role directing and premeditating every move that creates the act of manipulation. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's some backstory there with Eric Reif, who was the band's manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had some problems in Europe on the tour. Um, there's a lot of European yeah. tours that this band had some issues with, whether canceling shows or canceling right. full tours, where you know it left a lot of people with some bad taste in their mouth. But you know, I think Eric Reif uh, described that he perhaps... You know, he's a diabetic. He had Mm -hmm. to stay in the hospital at one point. They all got sick on tour. And so he was having to kind of organize some of the shows and and check in with promoters and venues like from the hospital or off of the bus, essentially. And so it was just a lot. And he I I think, uh, you know, being on tour is very hard. I've not experienced it. I can only imagine what being gone for like, you know, weeks, months at a time will do to a person. So I think there's just a lot of uh, emotions flying. There's a lot of uh, you know, there's just so much happening uh, on a tour and making sure things go right, especially in this era where, you know, I mean, obviously it's still tough now, but this is, you know, with technology, it's it's impossible. Yeah, this this was definitely during a period of time where, um, you know, information was few and far between when it came to touring. Things were probably still being booked via a um, landline phone or even a phone booth at that yep. point, you know. Uh, using an atlas while driving, uh, especially if you're trying to, you know, traffic Europe, which, um, you know, our our highways, our roadways, our, you know, our systems are a little bit different here than they are there. Having to traverse that when you're an American that's never been there before. Um, 
and, and having to go through all that, I'm sure breeds a lot of contempt, breeds a lot of anger, breeds a lot of resentment. And when you've got, um, you know, when your support group, your manager, whoever that may be, uh, and you're having issues with that, you're having issues with the labels, issues with former band members, you know, anything like that. This is the first album he really let loose on like yeah. that. Everything else beforehand was either, you know, zombies, monsters, gore, yeah. uh, social political stuff with um, with human, um, some personal stuff with human as well. Uh, but this is the first album he really was just like, you know what? Fuck all of you. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this is this is who I am. Uh, I'm going to just let loose and just let everyone have it. I mean, yeah. even the even the songs themselves without hearing the lyrical phrase are angry. It's very, yes. you know, I saw a negative review of this record and they called it directionless, which I've seen a lot of records that are really angry called directionless. It's because he was hitting everybody. You mm-hmm. know, he was he was angry at every single thing. And I don't think he ever really let it be known who and what all the songs were about. But it's I mean, you read between the lines. It's there. Um, I mean, you look uh, I can't remember the title of the song, but uh, I interpreted them as like individual thought patterns. I interpret that title as uh, having your own thoughts on what you perceive to be whatever the subject is and not falling in with, you know, not being a sheep, basically. Right. You know, not not following a pack of people. I mean, that's that's enough to title or title that album that way. I mean, that's a clear statement. Yes. Doing things to the beat of your own drum and and kind of yep. like picking out people for maybe uh, being performative or, or what have you. Um, I think obviously there's a lot of Chuck is against a lot of, um, you know, kind of doing things a the same way everyone else is. doing. Yep. I feel like one thing that is clear about Chuck is that he always wanted to be different or be not be lumped in with you know, the tropes of death metal. Um, You know, you look at some of those interviews where he's, you know, wearing the cat shirt, the famous Uh, interview there uh, with Andy LaRock. Uh, I mean, I've heard stories where the dude would wear flip flops on stage. Like it didn't matter to him being, but being different and writing differently, um, having different musicians on your record uh, that maybe look at arranging songs differently. I think that certainly shows. And yes, People uh, who had crossed his path during this time were definitely uh, a target. You know, uh, it's funny that we bring this up, like kind of playing things to the beat of your own drum. You know, Chuck wearing sandals, flip flops, wearing like, you know, old running shorts on stage. Uh, Decibel Magazine just had two mold on the cover and the Internet community was just pissed off at the fact that these guys were on there in like, you know, five inch inseam shorts and like a t-shirt it's like oh they look like everybody else that likes this type of music and for whatever reason everyone got real bent out of shape about it and it's like oh for the love of god just get get out of here like come on well talk about i mean talk about a band that really just kind of is is truly unique or at least like these last past few records i mean they really just kind of have been doing whatever they wanted to Mm -hmm. do whatever sounded cool to them and i think i mean the latest record I just got it in the mail the other day. It's yeah, it's so cool. I mean, there's definitely some there's some symbolic influence on that. I think there's there's some of this record on there. Absolutely, there there Um, definitely is with those guitar layers and guitar harmonies. That like death is kind of known for those uh, those fifth guitar harmonies that are all over it. That's kind of their thing. Uh, I mean, it's all over. It's all over this record. 
Yes. Uh, but, you know, Chuck definitely ran to the beat of his own drum. Very strong-willed person from the from all of the information that I have um, on him. Uh, very strong-willed, very um, forward-thinking, even when it may not seem that way. Uh, I mean, he definitely had an agenda and a plan for every one of these records when they came out, what he wanted to do with them. Uh, I mean, to a point that we saw what we saw at the end of his career, he was completely transitioned out of playing death metal at all. He was yeah. going in and playing like what is known as power metal today, but was just like a classic kind of heavy metal meets progressive rock leaning record um, with those recordings. But he, you know, he did things his own way. Yep. Uh, it, it didn't matter what amount of success he did get from it or didn't get from it. He did things his own way. And, you know, we could we could get in the weeds on that all day long. But, you know, we're here to kind of dig into this great record that we've got. Uh, yeah. You, know, you talked about, you know, all of the song titles. I mean, there's uh, is it the third track on the record? It's called Jealousy. I yes. mean, come on. You can't be any more straightforward than something like that. Um, That's a good track, that though, title. man. It's a great. Oh, track. my God. I mean, this one in particular stuck out to me as far as and there's a lot of this on the record where mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of a uh, lot of diversity uh, rhythmically. I mean, yes. there's like start stops like there's so many things going on. Um, Jealousy was like certainly a, a song too. Speaking of rhythm section, where the bass really came full and like, oh, Steve DiGiorgio is here and he has arrived. Like, so noticeable. There's like a little, I don't know if you'd necessarily call it a solo, but there's certainly like a line where he is just oh, in yeah. the forefront. Um, you know, you have Andy and Chuck trading, so, trading off solos, as we've mentioned uh, throughout this song as well. And of course, the scathing lyrics uh, you want what is not yours, yep. you want what you cannot have. Uh, yeah, definitely very impactful. <laughs> definitely uh, so many things you could uh, try to piece together in your own mind. Um, do you have any other uh, favorite songs from this record? Um, I want to get into that, but I want to touch on this with the lyrics. Um, you know, we talk about how Chuck had this great mind for writing, but he doesn't get near the credit for kind of his lyric prose mm-hmm. that he should because he had some inventive shit. I mean, it's not like the, even the gore stuff he did early on was great. I mean, um, is it uh, is it pull the plug that yeah. has the line "Why don't you choke?" or am I getting two songs mixed up here? Yeah, yeah. Why don't oh. you just pull the plug? I mean, that's a great yeah. line. And, and choke. There's a song called "Choke" on it, I believe. Yeah. Um, that is again, and I'm, someone's going to butcher me uh, on this one, but um, I mean, he had he knew catchy song structures and catchy and lyric structures because he grew up listening to kiss and classic rock i mean like we all do you know like i know when when i write the stuff i write i want it to be catchy mm-hmm. uh, you know i want to have like where's the hook you've heard me yes. say that forever like where's the hook yeah it's heavy it's aggressive but where's the fucking hook um with my favorite tracks that are on this record i know trapped in a corner is probably the most known song on the album for a fucking reason um, it's a great song. It's a massively good song. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a laundry list of what heavy metal should be on that album. Yeah. That's definitely a highlight for me on the record. Again, rhythmically, it's like, like amazing, amazing riffs on this record, guitar harmonies and melodies. Um, again, you have some of maybe the best guitar work by Andy on this record as well, or on this song in particular. Um, there's a, like a really bouncy breakdown, like, yep. uh, you know, and it's, I don't know, man, this is def that was definitely a highlight for me on the, on the album. Um, 
there's a, like you mentioned, you know, you wouldn't think normally with death metal or extreme music that there wouldn't be like a, like a hook, like something catchy about it. But there really is just that, you know, there's a lot going on. It's a very dense record, but there's always something, there's always something sticking out with each song that really sticks with you. Uh, You know, songs like uh, nothing is everything. There's like a really, really cool, awesome, like classically influenced guitar, uh, guitar line on that, on that track as well. So my, I would say my favorite two tracks on here are Destiny for the obvious reasons of Steve. That might be Steve's standout baseline on the whole album. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a certain point where it's like, it's not even a walking line. He's just highlighting all of these like chord changes with mm-hmm. like arpeggiating these notes. It's wild. Uh, Out of Touch has one of the coolest fucking like middle riffs to it. Uh, gets me every time. It's a classic death thing that Chuck does, and like you'll see that in a lot of his writing. But like, it just really sticks out. Uh, and obviously, you know, the philosopher. Uh, yeah. Honestly, wouldn't it have been my first choice for a single. It's a weird song. Um, it's got some like, and even the tail end of it, the bass ends the song. Oh man, I love you that. Just, you hear him it like, just kind of fades out, like, uh, which is funny because you listen listening back to some of these songs. There's yeah. definitely like a hard out maybe at a yeah. lot of the end of these tracks. This one is just kind of, you know, obviously to end the record, it just kind of, it, it you, know, ends you could be jam. playing forever. Um, I love, the, you know, that's, again, the video obviously is a, a big part of why I love that song. I want to get into that in a second. But yeah, I would say, you know, as I mentioned, um, probably Trapped in a Corner is is a favorite. Yep. Um, Philosophers a, a favorite uh, going through some of these. Uh, I love, I love Destiny. Uh, for that like acoustic part in the beginning, that yep. acoustic section, that's not really a thing that you would perhaps normally hear with this band. Um, songs like Out of Touch and um, I want to say uh, Mentally Blind have these like really cool keyboard yes. parts that kind of make their way from human, but also sound like a precursor to what would ultimately become symbolic as well. Right. Uh, those are really cool. They sound very big. There's like they're epic sounding, uh, you know, obviously control denied is like a very kind of epic sounding and it's not keys for the sake of like here's a traditional like piano part it's purely sense as a kind of background and atmosphere yes that's purely what it highlights you know uh i think that was a trope in heavy metal music for a long time i was like oh god it's got keyboards on it it's terrible it's because people would try to play keyboards like a piano and it would be terrible uh like some of those early like you know early early heavy metal records that had keyboard on them um whereas like this was more in a sense of we want to set a theme and an atmosphere with this and i think that is a tie-in from those old horror films man you look at like phantasm right sets the theme like that's the first thing that comes to mind uh the exorcist sets a theme uh evil dead sets a theme you know, you look at all those old, all those old synth tracks. I'm sure these guys were listening to Goblin as well. That seems to be uh, a big thing amongst the heavy metal community or the death metal community. Um, you know, we we talked about the track philosopher. We alluded to the video. You know, let's dig right in. Yeah. I remember watching Beavis and Butthead as a kid. It was still on TV because yeah. I'm that fucking old. Um, and seeing this one. Uh, the philosopher video, you know, much years later, years, many years later and realizing what it was and hearing those guys just, they compared it to, um, was it Jeremy? It was Pearl Jam. Yeah. They Jeremy. compared it to that video, making fun of his vocals. Yeah. Like this video got a lot of airplay on MTV. Surprise. It's true. I mean, I think that the important thing to note is that 
Death did have, you know, obviously the like lack of comprehension and and yep. this video was likely being played on Headbangers Ball at the time, but that it's such a like a small audience yep. that it's not like that show was on every day. You no, know, you'd have no. to wait throughout the week to and probably at what like the the late hours yep. of the night just to to catch a video. Whereas this is a very popular show at the time. And while they're ripping into the band and Death and Chuck, you know, you're still having like 40 seconds of this video. Uh, yeah. I'm sure somebody heard that and was like, actually, I really, I really do like that. Oh man, that's, uh, that's the Florida swamp. I, I, I definitely want to see that. It's kind of what I've mentioned in previous episodes where like somebody is playing me something, a cannibal corpse yep. video or a song and it's being played to me for comic effect. They're digging, look how ridiculous this shit is. Yeah, but, but at the same time, yeah, it's not, I, now I'm a fan for life because this is just so insane. It's so heavy. I've never heard anything like it. I, I'm uh, almost maybe even terrified. Like I want to know more about this, but I mean, talk about uh, a statement to end the record. Uh, I mean, it's another like very like scathing track, but the the video is, it is odd. It's, it's very it's an odd video. It's fil- It almost looks like it's filmed the same way as the lack of comprehension video was filmed. Just yeah. very much like, let's just use the same people. Yeah, it's... Uh, Isn't Ralph Santola in this video? Yeah, so obviously Andy LaRock is not like yeah. a member of Death. Like he has his commitments elsewhere in King Diamond. Um, he had to go back to Sweden and, and fill that. But yes, so you have uh, Ralph Santola... Mm-hmm. Who kind of fills in on the uh, during the live shows, the, yep. the tours of this in the United States, and so he is featured in the the video uh, for the album as well. And I don't think Steve's in the video. I think it's somebody else, or I could no, be. Steve, yeah, that Steve, I believe Steve's, Steve's in. Steve's not in the lack of comprehension video. Then that's another. No, guy. that's the cynic guys. And then uh, I'm not sure who is actually in the um, the the bass player uh, that's featured in in that lineup. But um, yeah. He, it's I don't believe it's Steve, yep. but Steve is uh, Steve is featured in this video. Gene Hoagland's featured in this video. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you do have a different guitar player uh, who is around for the filming just because and he's filling fulfilling the tour requirement as well. Ralph has a bit of a, a lineage in death metal as well and many other things uh, with some kind of odd tie ins. You wouldn't imagine uh, Ralph has Ralph has a very is very stylistically similar to the way Andy LaRock plays. Mm-hmm. Uh the first time I heard Ralph Santola play guitar was on a Deicide record that came out in 2006 yeah. called The Stench of Redemption. He made Deicide a better band. Uh, he was also in Iced Earth, which obituary? also... He, correct. He was an obituary right before he passed away. You are right. Um, but he he was in Iced Earth, and he that's a very fitting band with like some of its stylistic choices of like this like over-the-top, classically composed, kind of power metal-esque stuff. Um, you know, Ralph would have fit right in with like the control denied stuff, honestly. Uh, good player. Yeah, glad to see he got highlighted a little bit with his band. Um, I, I want to touch a little bit more on the Beavis and Butthead thing. Um, a little bit. I'll make it short. But uh, the I watched Beavis and Butthead as a kid. My father showed me the movie when I was a kid. Um, but the the best memory of Beavis and Butthead I have is when they watched the Pantera video for This Love. And they yeah. were mocking... Uh, Phil and Salmo and just kept calling him Pantera. And they were saying like, oh, this guy's stepdad is really mad. And like, God damn it, Pantera, this beer is warm. Like <laughs> just that's why he's so mad. And that's just stuck with me. The some of the I mean, they've they've made fun of Morbid Angel, Crowbar. Uh, I mean, dude, some of the I don't know if I ever seen one where they were like, 
they dug a, a particular guar. There you go. That's yeah, it. and that's like that's of it. course. Who who else would be their favorite band other than than but, guar? I mean, they're in the video game. Yeah, so it it, it makes sense. Um, you have the video, you have the album, you have the backing of uh, Relativity. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I want to say, they definitely did uh, some European dates for this, yep. which again this band having kind of a issues or a kind of a, some fiascos that happened on tour. They finally did get to tour Europe. They hit all the dates. Um, I think Steve and Gene were like a big factor in why that worked. Maybe just a kind of a good support system for Chuck to be out yeah, there on the road. That's, you know, those guys may have, may not have been on the first three records, which always get regarded as the classics for this band. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the guys played on human, which is kind of the, is the classic to me. That's the album to like measure this band by. But Ch- or, uh, Steve and Gene were always kind of this voice of reason for Chuck. Even when they weren't in the band, like he trusted those guys a lot. And it may have been because they weren't just like bending to what he said. Maybe it is because they're like, hey, that's not a good idea, man. This is, this is, you know, more so what you want to do. Almost like an older brother situation. Yeah. Um, you know, with the touring that, they were able to do with this record, you know, it almost makes you think like maybe if, maybe if this band had started during this period, it would have made it so much more sense for Chuck. He's a little bit older, maybe not as brash. Um, and he'd been able to go out and do the things he wanted to. Uh, obviously we, as we see, we didn't get a whole lot of time. Yeah. Um, with Chuck post this album, uh, cause it would be remarkable to see what he'd be doing now. Hell, he'd probably be filling in for like, you know, at this point, some uh, traditional heavy metal band at this point. He'd probably be playing fill in for like a band like Satan or, or any of those acts like that stuff. He was a big fan. Of. I'd love to know, you know, it's yeah, unfortunate to have to be um, talking about this from a point of what if, where would he be? Uh, would he revisit some of this stuff? Obviously, like, you know, the records that came after, you know, they're they're different sounding. Um yeah. I, I like them for what they are. I, I think, you know, when you get to Sound of Perseverance, I don't, he didn't even really, want, he didn't want that to be a death no. record. He was kind of out of that That was a that label, point. that was a label like tie in. Yeah. They would, Nuclear Blast would sign Control Denied if they gave him a death record. Yeah. And it was just like, okay, I'll see what I can just pull out of my ass. And those were a lot of uh, Control Denied riffs yep. and that were on that album. I like, I like some of that stuff too. It's, it's different. It's, you know, when I first heard it for this, you know, when I heard it for the first time, um, I was, you know, I was like, oh, this is interesting. I wouldn't have yeah. figured him to be, um, you know, he, I just playing guitar. Like he didn't even want to like, yep. all right, nope. you take care of it. I'm, I'm done His with vocals that. vocals are massively different yeah, on that record. Absolutely. Too. They're high. Yes. And really obviously I, I, you know, that perhaps may have to do with his illness as well. Yeah. Uh, or just, you know, for a long, long time of really just wear and tear on the vocals. but. Um, yeah, I mean, this at least stands as, as a, a pretty classic record in the genre at a time where, you know, a lot of bands were probably trying to nip at the bit of like what's working well. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of um, bands at the time that were, um, they just sounded the same. And so you have these bigger guys who are kind of at the forefront, at leading the charge, mm-hmm. uh, making your covenants, making your individual thought patterns. Um, you know, there's really so there's there's really not else that needs to be said. This is a classic album. Uh, yep. If you haven't listened to it, I would highly recommend listening to it. It's kind of like uh, 
one of those records that stands as like, all right, obviously we're in a renaissance now. There's so many great bands. But if you're interested yeah. in perhaps like checking out some of the history and some of those like foundational, uh, pivotal records, this this one would be a, a recommendation that I would certainly give. This is like a record of yeah. like, here's the blueprint. All right, now go run with it. This is this is how you do it. This is the uh, as our third co-host that I always make a point to mention uh, in every episode. Uh, Justin Swindle has said about our definitive statements we make. I'm going to make one right now. Um, this is the when I think of death, I don't think of any album after this one. This is this is kind of my stopping point with mm-hmm. the band. Uh, I did not enjoy symbolic, and I don't necessarily enjoy sound of perseverance. I can hear those albums go like, oh yeah, that's that's off that record. I can hear anything off of Sound of Perseverance and know it's on that yeah. record. Even before I hear the vocals. Right. Uh, I can hear stuff on Symbolic. It just sounds, that album just sounds like a little soulless to me. Gotcha. It sounds like there's some stuff on there that's kind of cool, but I just go, it's a little too far in that melodic kind of like European style of writing for me. Whereas this album still had very much a culmination of things. That, that really made me like it. And that's why, yes, Human may be the pinnacle of this band, but this is my favorite death album that's fair. of all time. That's totally fair. And uh, so as we've mentioned earlier in the episode as well, uh, they've kind of since gone back and, and remastered or remixed a lot of these records. Yep. Uh, you know, Relapse has been kind of uh, responsible for a lot of that. Eric Greif's company as well. I think they've kind of allowed for this to, uh, you know, all of these like new physical packagings and, um, new releases of these records, new additions. Um, I want to say it kind of started perhaps with Steve DiGiorgio where he was like, wouldn't that be cool if we did some of that? We should, I mean, Chuck, it seems like Chuck always wanted to remix um, de- uh, Human. Right. And so maybe that kind of started the yeah, the process it here. it started with that record for sure. They remixed and remastered that album a handful of years ago. Mm-hmm. Got a great release through Relapse. Got these great expanded editions with all these demos and outtakes. Um, but no one mentioned individual thought patterns. No one needed to remix that one. And I know we've talked about it uh, off air, but this remix and remaster upset a few people. Uh, Steve DiGiorgio in particular, mm-hmm. that isn't known for really getting upset about a lot of things. It just kind of hit them the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, because it kind of changed the way the album sounded, the way the approach is. Matter of fact, I don't think you can actually find a vinyl copy of the original mix. Oh, anymore. wow. I mean, I will say I've heard him say that it's an improvement, but yeah, I mean, with this record, it's, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if he really needed to go as far yeah. as remixing it. Um, so yeah, I've, I've heard him say it's, it's an improvement, but I almost would have liked to have seen more of an improvement or more, but they yeah. also didn't really, they did this, you know, they did these, um, kind of remix and remasters of these records, but they didn't in necessarily include, the people who actually worked on them. obviously yeah it's a you know chuck unless he got like a ouija board i don't know if, if you could really get some input on that but you know obviously gene and steve are around uh that you could maybe invite them to kind of not even I, I heard him say he's like i would have just liked to have been like uh like a guide almost like hey yeah. this is perhaps what we we're going for like you don't even have to listen to me it would have just been nice to have been like have some input on this at all I heard an interview right. with Gene and Steve together while they, I think they were on one of those metal cruises and Gene didn't even know that they had remixed it. And obviously they, yeah. they're doing other things. They're probably not so much concerned with stuff like that, right. but yeah, it's uh, it, it was kind of an interesting 
perspective to hear where it's like, okay, here's the guys who actually played on the record and they're not even really involved in the process or how this record came out or how this new version right. of it uh, was released. The only positive I could see anytime they remaster a record is that they get the album out to people that weren't able to get it. It puts it back in production. It puts it back in circulation. The remix, as Steve said, sounds good. It's an improvement. It sounds more modern, meaning like you can hear a lot more of it. I mean, Alan Duchess did a great remixing and mastering on it. He's look his name up. He, he's done anything and everything. Uh, overall, you know, with all, it wouldn't be a death album without a little bit of like chaos associated around it though. Yeah. Um, great album, classic album to me. Um, you know, I have, I have trumped this era of the band for a very long time. And I think this era of the band, luckily with our age group, this era of the band gets a lot more attention paid to it. Whereas maybe the older guys paid more attention to, uh, you know, the first era and some of the younger, some of the younger guys are going to pay attention to the later era because that's going to be the thing that they dig into. Uh, but overall, Classic record, great record, fun record, uh, inventive. It's another death record. We've reached that part of the episode where we like to recommend a few things to listeners out there, some things we've been uh, jamming on uh, over the past week. Uh, Dylan, uh, what have you been listening to, man? So first off is a the newest released from American black metal band, Woe. That's W-O-E. Mm. Uh, their album Legacies of Frailty that came out on Vendetta Records. Um, I got a chance to see this band at the Stone Fox in Nashville oh, quite a few years wow. ago. Um, I just went to a show on a whim. And Stone Fox. This is, this is a great album. Just great American black metal. American black metal is a little bit different, obviously. Uh, a little bit a little bit more depressive almost which is a funny thing to say so great album for this time of year um and then a the newest released from Carnifex called Necromantium uh Carnifex is a California based uh deathcore band death metal band um that has in my opinion went more so the symphonic kind of death metal area uh, and they've done it for a long time they're one of the stalwarts of the subgenre uh, and I've also been going back and listening to some Unearth records. Uh, I got a chance to see the Revocation Unearth tour a few nights ago, and um, Revocation's great, always will be. I love seeing that band, seeing that band in any iteration. But Unearth headlined, and uh, I hadn't seen Unearth since I was 16 years old. Oh, really? And the, oh my god, it was like and 70 years ago. That was like 70 years ago, man. And the band came out, played a lot of songs from their 04 record, The Oncoming Storm, and played. Uh, a mishmash of some songs from uh, later records, but uh, the albums I always fall back on of that band are 2004's The Oncoming Storm and 2006's Three in the Eyes of Fire. Uh, in particular, if anybody wants to check on the album for that band, I'm always going to suggest one of those two. Perfect. Um, I haven't been listening to much this week. Uh, there is a new record out, however, by the band Svalbard, uh, The Weight of the yes, Mask. Yes, that's right. Um, this is a record there. Uh, it's out now through nuclear blast records. It's their yep. first for the label. As I understand, um, I'm a latecomer to this band, to be honest with you. I, I, I got into them kind of late. Uh, you yep. had turned me on to them. Actually, yeah. the my, that last album's really good. The, my introduction, uh, I, I got into that record later as well, but, mm -hmm. um, the knock tool, uh, the kind of like a pandemic, yeah. uh, yeah, that's project, right. uh, basically, uh, Serena cherry, uh, basically recorded all of the instruments for a like Skyrimmed 
uh, influenced black metal record. And I love it. Like garage band. Yeah. It's like, it's great. It's fantastic. So I love that. And then having heard that, I went and listened to the Svalbard records. And uh, this is a cool one. I, I would highly recommend it. This is a, I'm a newer, I'm a newcomer to this band. So this is a great start. It sounds very cohesive. And I think it's been getting a lot of uh, buzz as of late. So check that out if you haven't. Uh, some other new music as well. Uh, two new singles by the band Year of the Knife. Um, oh, those are rad. Though, uh, their album, No Love Loss, is going to be out on October 27th, obviously kind of following uh, the really tragic bus accident uh, that happened a while back. But I, I believe the uh, singer has been since released from the hospital. So still still kicking, still uh, kind of yeah, healing. I believe all the funds that are going to be generated from that record actually go straight to her. I believe as well, I mean, uh, the community around this band, you know, the hardcore community, the metal community, uh, fans of the band have really kind of stepped up and uh, really done some great things to help support uh, a band in, you know, really terrible, terrible time. Uh, but the record, I mean, the the two songs that I've heard so far, they're quick, but uh, the first single, Wish, features uh, Devin Swank from Sanguisugabog on, on a track, uh, and then the... Uh, uh, the second single, Last Laugh, also features features uh, Dylan of uh, Full of Hell. Yep. And uh, I can hear that snotty that, kind of rasp on that uh, yeah. thing immediately. <laughs> so, so, so great. I mean, I love when bands do the kind of like the feature thing where they have like yeah. their friends or some guests uh, appearances on the record. So if you haven't checked out those two tracks, I highly recommend that as well. They're awesome. Um, but that's pretty much it. We've uh, talked about individual thought patterns. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, you can always follow us for any updates on this podcast, as well as our live show, Vocal Distortion, at Distortion891 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, next week, it'll be the same thing. We're going to be talking about some more riffs here on Riff Worship.